Welcome back to the program. Art theft is always a funny thing. The public is usually fascinated by the story, but can seldom feel the kind of empathy with the theft that they feel even when their neighbor's car is broken into. Art theft at the highest level is a very special, almost elite kind of crime. Like reading the pages of Rob Report, it fascinates, but it never really engages. Perhaps that's why so many art thefts are never solved, including the recent granddaddy of them all, the theft of priceless paintings from the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston 25 years ago. My guest, Stephen Kirkshin, has been at the heart of that story since its beginning. Stephen Kirkshin is one of our most acclaimed investigative reporters. He's a veteran of the Boston Globe. He's the paper's former Washington bureau chief and a founding member of the investigative spotlight team. He's won 25 national and regional awards, including three Pulitzer Prizes. And it is my pleasure to welcome Stephen Kirkshin to the program to talk about his new book, Master Thieves, The Boston Gangsters Who Pulled Off the World's Greatest Art Heist. Stephen, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Great, it's to, great to be on, Jeff. Great to have you here. What is it about art heist in, in the public's consciousness? And you've been writing about this and looking at this a long time. There is something different in the way the public views these kind of crimes. Well, I, I hear you when you say that uh, we care, may care more about the theft of an automobile from our neighbor than of these priceless artworks. Uh, it seems to have become a cold case here in Boston. And that's a troubling uh, aspect, uh, both because of what what was lost and what it says about the city. Uh, what was lost is in, is really incredible. Uh, three Rembrandts and a Vermeer uh, are at the heart of the of the thirteen pieces that were stolen. The Vermeer was one of the only Vermeer in all of New England. Uh, probably on the East Coast is one or two others. Uh, East Coast of the United States. In the, uh, the the one Rembrandt was his only seascape, the, um, uh, the storm in the Sea of Galilee, and that both of them worth you know together two hundred three hundred million dollars if there was a market for it. But there is no market for stolen artwork of this uh, high caliber. So uh, that was part of the imponderable of the story as to why. This artwork would have been stolen when there would be no obvious easy fence. Could it have been a, you know, a, 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 an appreciator of art that mm-hmm. would have, you know, could not live without such a, a masterpiece in his lair? But the FBI and those people who work uh, in other cases says they really such cases of they, they they don't know of such a case. There's no case of a Pierce Brosnan or or Steve McQueen. <laughs> Uh, type of person out there, a doctor no uh, out there who would uh, dare steal an, a, a piece of art in order for him alone or her alone to appreciate. That doesn't happen. So I thought that through and I started working on the other mo- a possible motive, which is a very real one, especially here in Boston, because it, there had been a case in the 70s that, uh, that caught the attention of reporters in which a, a bad guy, a fellow who had been involved in several art thefts of minor, more minor uh, material, more minor pieces, he was caught and he was about to be sentenced on a federal crime, a theft up in Maine of uh, some Wyeth paintings. And what he did was he had his gang break into the Museum of Fine Arts, break in, they took Kemp, come and did it with guns. They stole the Rembrandt and they put the Rembrandt under the bed of the mother of one of the of the um of the associates in the gang 
and he said to the FBI, I can affect the, the return of that Rembrandt if you'd go light on me. And uh, his lawyer, very you know, good lawyer, criminal defense lawyer in, in Massachusetts, worked out a deal in which they they didn't let him off. You know, his lawyer said, would you let him off? No, we're not going to let him off on any crime. We're going to charge him with the theft of the um, of the MFA and we're going to charge him with the theft of the Wyatts. But we'll let the two terms uh, serve uh, concurrently. So they wouldn't serve an extra term for the uh, for the MFA robbery. In that, but that became part of law in Boston among the bad guys that you could get a criminal associate out of jail. You could get a loved one out of jail, or you could get a sent a, a charge dropped against you if you were able to get your hands on a priceless piece of art. That's why museums became vulnerable here. And that's why, as my reporting finds, that is the most likely motive for, the, for this, this Gardner theft. Why should we believe what the FBI thinks with respect to motive, what might or might not be the motive, when after 25 years, they really haven't come close to solving the crime? Come close? I'm not sure they, uh, that, that's right. I do, I, think, I do think that they have... Uh, come up with, you know, they've investigated everything. The FBI, uh, you know, uh, went after every lead that they got. Every phone call was returned. Every um, bad guy or bad guy's lawyer who said that my my client could help solve this case, they were willing to talk with. Uh, So I don't think it's a a lack of effort. Um, What I think, but I think what happened here is the FBI ran out of leads. Uh, the FBI took over this case. They believed since it was probably going to, the, the property was going to be traveled through interstate transport, that they, they, and they, that they, have, they have total control over that. They took over the case. They didn't bring in the Boston and Massachusetts, Boston Police and Massachusetts State Police. And those forces have their own resources and sources inside the Boston criminal world. But when they were cut out of the investigation, they stepped down. They did not, they did not offer, and I don't know if they had anything in their files, but they're not going to participate. Uh, vo- they're not going to volunteer participation unless they get credit for it. The FBI, I, my, my sense is, though, the FBI wasn't doing it, cutting them out of the case because they wanted all the glory. My sense is that the FBI didn't want to imperil any information that they gained in their investigation. They're very, they're fiercely protective of information they develop and they didn't want to chance any of it leaking. So they took over the case and they worked it. They worked it hard. It's just that this case is so difficult. My sense is the people who did the robbery died soon after there was a Boston gang war that was going on. Two gangs were shooting, shooting at each other. It was a casualty toll that grew and grew and grew. And my sense is the people who were involved in this actual theft, suffered a fate, not because of the Gardner robbery, but because of some other uh, um, criminal activity they were involved in, drug wars, racketeering, narcotics, whatever. And they died, and with them died the secret. Are there law enforcement officials inside Boston or inside the state of Massachusetts that have a different theory of the case than the FBI? A different theory... No, 
no one is spending time on this case but the FBI in the museum's own security director, and he works diligently, even more, more uh, he spends more time on the case than the FBI agent, and uh, they, they pretty much work together. So I don't think anybody, there are any sort of uh, theories out there as to um, as to who did it or where the paintings are, where the artwork is. I think, you know, for an investigative reporter like myself, who I spend as much time thinking about it and as almost as much time thinking about it as I do talking to people, sources, people who say they have information, people who may relate to the individuals whom the FBI actually feel were involved in the robbery. The FBI came out with a theory or some some hints of a theory uh, two years ago. And my book spends a lot of time in in detailing what the FBI um, uh, theory, if you will, of the case is. And uh, it's pretty good. They got people to say that they had seen the artwork and they believe these people who said they had this person who says they saw the artwork and they believe this person who said that her late husband had given it before he died to a friend who uh, lives in the, an old timer who lives in, in, in Manchester, Connecticut. And they believe they went so far as to get a search warrant and dig up his entire backyard and looking for the artwork. And they also looked at a shed that he had in the backyard, which is something which is a major part of my chapter, one of my chapters. Right. What about the piece of artwork that was allegedly seen in Brooklyn, the, the Rembrandt that yeah. was torn from its frame? <laughs> it's, um, it's, um, it was the, the, the lead that got me into the story back in 1997. Uh, the, the Boston Globe uh, in Boston Herald, the competitors for the newspaper market here in Boston, and uh, a reporter for the Boston Herald, uh, you know, a very competent, able reporter, got a source who brought him to a uh, warehouse, and then undetermined, but in my book I say, say where it was, um, and in Brooklyn, and showed him for a flicker for a very short period of time, maybe even as quick as shutting on and shutting off a flashlight, a painting. He was within five feet of it inside a warehouse um, unit, uh, a storage unit, that looked remarkably like the, sea, the seascape of Rembrandt's, the storm of the Sea of Galilee. And um, the reporter reported back, reported in his newspaper two or three days later, a headline, uh, we've seen it. And with a picture of the of the stolen uh, uh, storm of the Sea of Galilee, and um, you know he the, the source who brought him to it was never identified in by the Herald, but my book does. And he's a near the well who relates to one of the crime gangs here in Boston. Uh, the, you know he serves some small so, small sentences for um, unrelated crimes, but he. Um, he alleged to the FBI that he could have access to the paintings if the FBI would deal with him on a couple of minor matters and give a better sentence to a criminal associate of his, a guy named Miles Connor, who was a legendary art thief but was not at all involved in this, this Gardner theft. And the feds were wary. They didn't want to give in to this, in fact, um, you know, um, uh, the offer of without any proof. 
And what the U.S. attorney at the time, Don Stern, said, you give us concrete proof that you have access to these paintings. Not a reporter's viewing of it in a flashlight, in a flick of a flashlight, but concrete proof. And then we'll start to talk. And the, um, the, uh, the fellow brought forward some chips that he alleged to be from the Rembrandt, from the Storm of the Sea of Galilee. They did not turn out to have been. They were tested, and they were taught not to be from the storm, but they were. The FBI, in their announcement, in denying that they came from the Storm of the Sea of Galilee, <laughs> failed to say that the chips had come from the 16th century Dutch uh, piece of art. Didn't say which one. Could it have been the Vermeer that was also stolen? It's never been determined. One of the things that's so fascinating about this story is the way in which it has also become a kind of magnet for all the gangster and gang criminal elements in Boston, that that in the course of the investigation, that it Mm -hmm. constantly turns up new parts of the criminal elements in Boston. Well, that's the that goes back to that theory that the FBI will let a criminal associate out of jail. They will give you a get-out-of-jail-free pass if you can come up with one of the paintings. And as my reporting found here, that uh, several bad guys have uh, passed bad guys, now, now it's gone the straight and narrow, um, uh, have tried to uh, convince their associates or those associates whom they know um, in the criminal underworld uh, to get the paintings and bring them back that uh, the you know that there's a five million dollar reward uh, that the museum is offering and uh, that the no one will be prosecuted if you bring the artwork back so it's a, it's a you know it's a, um, a you know a rare offer that the FBI and the museum uh, are making why uh, yet it doesn't produce the recovery. The, this offer has been on the table for seven, eight years, yet it hasn't produced a, a, a recovery. And my sense is the reason why is that the people who are involved in the theft, like I said, are dead. They suffered a, you know, a, 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 they suffered the ultimate fate of being in the underworld. Uh, they were killed for some other reason, not related to the garden, but because they were involved in other criminal activity. And with their death died the secret. But there are people who suspect. There are people related to them or who are associated with them in their criminal world who may not know where the paintings are but suspect something. And it's those people whose conscience should be appealed to. And that's what, in the end, is what I think is one of the of the, um, the the more um, transcendent uh, important parts of the book, which is that there should be a public appeal made by, let's call them Boston's uh, leaders, whether they're leaders of the religious world or the sports world or the or the academic world or government world, to get those individuals in front of these empty frames. Those frames still are in the museum as empty frames on the wall, where the Rembrandt and the in the Vermeers were. They are empty frames on the wall and get the Boston public leaders to appeal to the Boston public that this is our loss. This is a great loss to the city, these, these, um, this, this artistic achievement. And they, the city will not be whole again until this stuff, this, 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 these masterpieces come back. We consider ourselves a world-class city. We consider ourselves, we are, 
we are going to be the United States, America's uh, applicant in the uh, in the Olympics Games for 2024. So for us to consider ourselves, as my appeal, is us to consider ourselves an Olympian-like city, we ought to first get these masterpieces back on the wall. Is there any nexus, and certainly it's been rumored over the years, but is there any evidence that there's any nexus between Whitey Bulger and the criminals that took these paintings? Well, it's a, uh, that always hangs out there. Uh, may, maybe because Whitey Bulger's uh, notoriety as a criminal was is so complete here in Boston, as is elsewhere. He was, as you know, he's caught from he's out in California when he was caught, and he had been on the run for fifteen years, or seventeen years, or whatever before he was caught. Um, my reporting showed, and I went after this because Whitey, in another case or two during the time that he was here in Boston after the theft. He was here in Boston on the streets, you know, hadn't been indicted yet between 1990 when the theft happened in 1995. Uh, and in, during his years of operating and controlling parts of Boston's underworld, he was able to affect what he called tribute. Whitey uh, was asked by the FBI several months after the theft, and the case had gone cold. Whitey, can you help us out here? Can you reach out to your criminal network and determine where this artwork is and get it back? If you do, it'll be a big favor that you're showing to the, to, uh, to, the, um, to the law enforcement and to the FBI. Whitey deputized several, at least two as I could find, of his underlings uh, to go out and search uh, their associates their connections and say, Whitey wants these paintings back. Where are they? Let's get them back. And both of them were unable. There's been talk of some rumoring that maybe at this point that they had been taken over by the IRA and shipped over to Ireland and they were used by the IRA, which was very active at the time in Ireland, in Northern Ireland, to uh, gain, um, to gain, um, uh, uh, munitions and, and, and weapons. My sense of that is this, is that there's been never any proof to show that if they had gone over to the to, to Northern Ireland or to Ireland to, to help the IRA effort. And secondly, if there are 13 pieces of artwork here. If they had been broken up and sold, there would be 13 trails of evidence that could be uh, detected, and then followed up by law enforcement. This is not just a U.S. Interpol is involved in this. So if there were 13 pieces of trails of evidence, you, I would have thought one of them might have produced a sighting. Yet in 25 years, there hasn't been a single sighting of what the FBI or the, or the U.S. Attorney's Office calls a proof-of-life sighting, that someone has brought in a photograph or the actual paint or an actual painting to say here it is and i can get you others it's never been it's never happened is it possible that while it may not have been the motivation in any way shape or form when these paintings were stolen that that given what's happened to them since given their provenance since they were stolen that they have in fact wound up in the hands of a collector in a basement in some private collection somewhere well, it, 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 anything is possible. 
and everything has to be considered, and I think that the people who work it look at it. Uh, the FBI went as far as uh, Japan early early days. Someone had seen, uh, as they went by a businessman's house, one of the paintings. I, I think it was the storm, but it might have been the concert, the Vermeer. And that information got back to the to the FBI here in Boston. Uh, they worked two channels to get to the individual who owned the house. They got into the house and they looked at it, and it was not the actual piece of art. It was a print uh, of of the stolen piece. So uh, the FBI is aware that that there is a possibility, but working against that possibility is this, and that is that individual, if or he or she has any of these pieces or let's say the Rembrandt, the seascape or the, or the concert, if they have had it, if they have it, they can't show it to anybody because they can't trust knowing the search that is out there, the lore of this case, anybody whom they show it to has a potential of picking up the phone and getting a major deal out of the FBI. I can get you back your artwork. And, and if I do that, uh, I would get a major piece of the reward. So my sense is that they're not being displayed. They're not being shown. No doctor, no, um, uh, you know, no uh, Pierce Brosnan type uh, is uh, holding on to this uh, because he cannot live without seeing uh, this, this piece of art. My sense is that they're buried, and the individuals who knew, who were involved in the theft and did bury them, uh, have died. And we've got to appeal to those people around them to pick up the phone, call the FBI, call the authorities, or call a reporter and say, I can help here. I have some information that may be useful. Because whatever purpose they were stolen for, long ago has been served. That's the, that, that's, it, it, they, they, they belong back uh, in the museum. They belong back in the viewing of uh, the Boston public and the art world. To what extent does the FBI still care? To what extent is the investigation ongoing on the part of the FBI, local law enforcement, or even reporters like yourself in Boston? Well, that's a fear that there is that the case, the case has become a cold case. And um, I know Anthony Amore, the the museum security director. He he works it diligently. He works numerous individuals, and he gets uh, calls from numerous people. Uh, that there is uh, another piece of evidence that he ought to, or another person, he ought to look at as a possibility of involved. The way they describe it is that they're looking for a needle in the haystack, but with each search that they make, and they do search houses, you know, if they get probable cause on an individual whom they think uh, was likely, they will be able, they are able to get a search warrant and search that, those properties, and they have. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how many, but they have more than a handful of houses that they've searched vigorously to, in, in search of these paintings. Uh, so I, I do think that they are, you know, they are on the case. Uh, you know, I, I came up with a, a in my reporting in one of the, in, in chapters of the book, uh, an individual who says that, uh, and he was involved in the Boston gang gang wars, that he was approached uh, by one of his associates who said that they were going to pull off the theft. That name had been raised before I brought my information to the FBI and told them that the, the fellow who had, the, the people who had told, given me this story uh, were willing to sit with them. They have not followed up on it. Maybe they just don't believe him. 
maybe they have already looked at him, but uh, they haven't followed up on it. So, but that's my sense that there is a, there is every every way or every approach or every person who might know something or have heard something, they're quickly interrogated or questioned or you know uh, uh, or approached and given this it seems to me to be an extraordinary deal give find us the paintings and not only will you not be charged with any crime but you will be um you'll get access to the five million dollar award given all of that do you think the paintings will ever be found i do i absolutely do and i think uh, the book helps uh, the buzz helps remind people that the the FBI is still working, that the museum still suffers this loss, and that the public suffers this loss. And I think if that's one approach, like I said, a, a new approach that uh, I raise in the book of a of a crowdsourcing campaign involving this this these these the stolen paintings, get the public involved, get the sense of loss uh, repeated and st- stated and repeated so that people know that there is no purpose of having these paintings in the ground. The purpose, you know, and whatever in piece of information you may have could be useful to piecing this together and putting this puzzle together. And no one's going to suffer any loss. Nobody's going to jail. And we will get this artwork back. And I do think that that approach um, will, will, will resonate in the right ear. And they'll pick up the phone and, you know, Hopefully someday, someday soon, uh, we'll be able to go back into the second floor of the Garden Museum and see the the Storm of the Sea of Galilee and the um, and the Vermeer and the other the other two Rembrandts that were stolen. The Manet, uh, uh, there was a Manet uh, portrait that was taken uh, and the, uh, knocked out of its frame, and the frame itself left on the security director's chair. The the uh, brutishness in which the the, uh, the thieves treated this artwork tells me it was not stolen to appreciate. It was stolen to affect an exchange with the FBI in hopes of gaining, you know, some favor on someone who was uh, who had been incarcerated. And that whoever that person might be, I I go through the through, through the the list and come up with a new name. I'm hoping that that that's a trail that the FBI will at some point follow. Stephen Kirkshen, the book is Master Thieves, the Boston Gangsters Who Pulled Off the World's Greatest Art Heist. Stephen, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Jeff, thank you. Great questions, and I appreciate the the opportunity to, to talk about my book. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. <laughs> 